in a world where Mad Lab Theater. What are you doing? Making the Mad Lab ad for Cinema Wheeler Tay. Oh, here's my other one. Susan thought it was just another day, and then she met Mad Lab. Why don't you just say that Mad Lab is the new works theater in downtown Columbus, featuring hilarious comedies, powerful dramas, improv with FFN, the annual Young Writers Festival, and the longest running shorts festival in central Ohio, Theater Roulette. That sounds pretty awesome, especially when I do it over the Star Wars theme. Star Wars is always a good choice. Mad Lab, the original. For more information, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit us at madlab.net. Welcome to another episode of Cinema Wheeler Tay. It's uh, Sean, Tony, and Scott as usual. Hello. And we're joined today by a first-time guest, which we haven't had in a while. Yes, we're uh, excited. They're we're re- very special. We always have to say that. They're a very special guest, yes. And it's one that we've been excited to have on the podcast for a long time. Uh, he is a... Uh, uh, a hip-hop artist of short hair. Multi-talented. <laughs> yes. Multi-talented uh, man. I, I remember the first time I ever saw him, I literally think my mind was blown. Oh, yeah. nice. I just did not expect what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> Formerly known as Noodle. <laughs> His name uh, from Columbus is uh, Eric Cotter. Thanks, Eric, for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm excited. And uh, today, because of the the season, uh, we're going to be talking about it, it, I guess it's fair to say this is a Christmas-themed movie to some degree, Uh, and uh, I think it's one of Tim Burton's best movies in general, uh, Edward Scissorhands. Yes. From 1990. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember this distinctly coming out, I remember reading magazine articles about it because I was, as you, our listeners well know, I'm a huge Batman fan. So when Batman 89 came out, everybody was interested to see what Tim Burton would do next if you liked that movie, and there was a lot of reports about this. There was also the success of Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. Writing, you know, off of Tim Burton's name, so he was really, I think everybody really highly anticipated exactly what he was going to do next. Oh, yeah, he was so hot, and he couldn't have been hotter than Tim Burton in 1990, because you had, like you said, you had Beetlejuice, he also had Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Pee-wee Herman was still popular. And, of course, Batman. So those three movies in a row leads him into this, which I think was his most personal project yet. It's one that he designed himself. It didn't come from someone else's idea or another script. It's one that he... I think he developed Edward Scissorhands as a character in childhood mm-hmm. because he grew up in Burbank, which yeah. Scott, Tony, and I got to see this summer when we went to, mm-hmm. to California. Uh, and he always felt like an outcast in Burbank because it's very suburban. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like... Mick, cutter. Yeah, Mick Houses, you know. And uh, he always felt like an outcast. And I think Edward Scissorhands is one of the characters that he created that were kind of autobiographical in the way he he designed it. So so it, it's, it was a big deal for him. He finally got creative control to do a project like yeah. that. 
he had kind of earned his his way, so to speak, oh, at sure. this point. Oh, sure. Yeah, coming Proved off himself. of Batman, you can yeah. pretty much claim uh, your own road there yeah. for a few years. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Certainly with this guy. <laughs> well, sometimes yeah. that's what you have to do, you know? You have to you have to prove yourself, and then you can finally do the work that you want to do. Right. It's just like in real life. You have to work for other people until you can finally work for yourself. Oh, is that so. a thing? That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what Tony Robbins <laughs> So I was going to go around uh, the table and talk to everybody, like, what was the first time they'd heard of the project or, or came across it or, or watched it? And I'll start with Tony. Well, I remember watching it as a kid when it came out. My uh, sister, Cindy at the time, was about 13 when this movie came out. And so she had a huge crush on Johnny Depp, as pretty much every other 13-year-old American girl did. And so I think we rented this from the video store. And we watched it, and I instantly was just entranced by the entire movie. The characters, the colors, the sets, the music, the fairy tale story. Um, it was so magical for me, and still is. I mean, I watched it this afternoon, and I still felt that as if I'm watching it for the first time. But um, I always was a huge Winona Ryder fan, too, growing up, and I like Johnny Depp a lot as well. So any movie that she was in, like I had seen Beetlejuice, you know, she was sort of one of the actresses that I really liked and, and enjoyed following their work. Um, so I, you know, was excited and appreciated the fact that she was in the movie. I didn't really have an understanding of who Tim Burton was or that he was the man that did, you know, Batman and Beetlejuice because at the time I was about six. Mm-hmm. But I definitely was really interested in this movie and was able to really get into it and... Um, felt that magic and that innocence of it and, and really um, enjoyed it for what it was. And then, of course, as I got older and watched it, really just have a strong appreciation for how touching it is. It's so heartwarming. Um, even though it's maybe not technically a Christmas movie, I think a lot of people tend to gravitate towards it, towards this time of the year, for those reasons. There's that, that fairy tale story, the magic, the essence, the beautiful music. Um, it is a story about love, and it's a story about family. And um, one of the takeaways I really got out of it this morning when I watched it was how many people come into our lives that don't always get the chance to stay for whatever reason, but they really touch our hearts and they leave a, a footprint you know, on our souls like Edward did with Kim and probably even her family. So, um, yeah. I got off on kind of a tangent there. <laughs> no, that's, that's but, good. Um, but yeah, so my first time seeing it, I was a kid, and I was instantly hooked. Yeah, yeah, and Scott, what was your uh, first? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the first time I, I remember hearing about it. it I didn't see it for a long time. I don't think it's, it's probably been within the last 15 years I've actually seen the movie, the whole thing. Um, when it came out, I wasn't, I don't think I was interested in seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reason I think it was on TV a lot but I would just see you know but it was just the last 15 years that I've actually sat down and watched the movie um, and what I was taking when I first my impression of actually watching it and from what I thought just seeing the trailers is completely different because mm-hmm. the first um, you know the first half of the movie is basically a satire of suburban America you know like just 50s style you know, you know, people just, you know, 
there's that scene when they're all going to work at the same time and they're all driving, they're all pulling out almost the same time and they just line up and go. <laughs> and everybody's all the houses in, are pretty much the same. The gossip color. and everything, yeah. stuff that we'll all go into. But I was like, wow, this is really different. This is really funny. It's almost like a comedy, you know, the first half of the you know, first hour of the movie. And then a second hour, the second part of the movie is more like what the, the trailer was like. So, but yeah, it's, it was. I remember being aware of it, and it was a big deal because it was, you know, after Batman, and it was, you know, a Tim Burton. I think this is the movie that made it. Like Tim Burton had like it was a Tim Burton movie, and from then on, people had a certain expectation for what a Tim Burton movie was. It is really definitive. Yeah, I, uh, it definitely is the movie that brought his visual style. I mean, it was it was there in Beetlejuice, but that was the first time, mm-hmm. and then you know, Batman. It was there, but that was Gotham, and it was a yeah. specific vision of Gotham. This is the first film that I think uh, it really registered with people. Oh yeah, this is who this guy is. Mm-hmm. This is this is his style. Yeah. What was the first time you came across the film? Was it like? A- um, yeah, I remember really specifically. I was in college at Bowling Green, and uh, there's a theater in downtown Bowling Green called the Clazelle. At least there used to be. I hope it's still there. Um, but anyhow, uh, yeah, it was the dead of winter and my, some of my friends and I walked all the way down Wooster Road from our dorm to the Cassell and saw it there. It was one of these like big old fashioned movie houses, just one movie at a time. And, uh, uh, we made a specific point of going down there to see it. Um, I, I don't know, I've always been a movie guy mm-hmm. and I, I kind of am drawn to things that are a little outside of the norm. And so this was just so weird looking, you know, yeah. <laughs> just so strange. <laughs> and uh, yeah, at the time, I don't think I had much of a concept of Tim Burton either. I'd seen Beetlejuice and I'd seen Batman, but, uh, you know, I hadn't quite registered who he was. Yeah. And Johnny Depp was just the dude from 21 Jump Street at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, Winona Ryder was the most recognizable face in it. But uh, I... Uh, I really remember being captured by the movie. Um, watching it the other day, I'd forgotten just what a dark turn it takes oh, towards yeah. the end. Yeah. Because the, the memories that I had of it were, you know, Winona dancing in the snow mm-hmm. and this beautiful moment at the end and, the, you know, the storytelling to the granddaughter. And uh, I forgot about, you know, the murder. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, I he but I, uh, I had my four-year-old daughter with me while we were watching it the other day, and I have to say, maybe not so appropriate for a four-year-old. Uh, right when it gets to the end there, and Anthony Michael Hall goes, you know, catches it to the stomach and goes flying out the window. But anyhow, uh, yeah, so... so Spoiler alert! Yeah. <laughs> my first time seeing it was definitely, you know, in the theater, probably opening weekend, and, uh, and then I owned the VHS... And then I owned a DVD, and I actually had to go rifle through my Blu-rays to see whether I owned it or not on Blu-ray. <laughs> Turns out I do not. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, But yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that I've revisited over and over and over again throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, my m- the first time I saw it was on HBO, because for some reason we didn't go to see it in the theaters, like you mentioned before, Scott. And uh, even though I wanted to see it, because Tim Burton had directed Batman and Beetlejuice and it was on my radar, but I just never got around to it. I thought it was odd at the time that Johnny Depp got the role because Johnny Depp at the time was owned for 21 Jump Street. It was more of a heartthrob. So it was a little odd to see him in the context of, of that that character. 
But when I started watching it on TV, I, I really liked it. I mean, the aesthetics are really funny. It was certainly a Tim Burton movie. It reminded me of mm-hmm. scenes from Beetlejuice at the very beginning where it poked fun at suburbia. Uh, revisiting it, I have to say how much I love the first half of this movie. And then the and like the and the weird thing is like it, it's satirical, but it doesn't hate these people completely. You know, some of them they right. do. Right. But the main family. I mean, I think it's hilarious. Diane Weist and Alan Arkin, I think, are hysterical in this movie. And Diane Weist playing an Avon lady going into that castle, that concept is hilarious to me because she goes in she as an so, Avon. She is so captivating. She's probably one of my favorite characters in yeah. the movie. She, yeah. Her yeah. heart. Like, we'll get into that later, but I, I yeah. just love her. Oh. I love her. She really, I think, captured the essence of what Tim Burton was trying to convey in, in many ways. You know, I think she just got the tone... She, she just did such a great job of selling it, you know, making it so believable as the young yeah. lady and just so sweet. Well, she's a very uh, relatable mm-hmm. actress. Like, I remember seeing her in The Lost Boys. That was the first time I think I ever, like, noticed her in something. And she just has this kind of warm mm-hmm. presence to her that was just perfect for this movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, my favorite, one of the first scenes kind of captures her, you know, what she's like because she's she goes to that one lady's door she opens I think it's the first door she goes to in the beginning and she does the whole spiel mm-hmm. I love what she does with her hand mm-hmm. you know and she like you know she, she's very very yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, regular you know or it's almost uh, what's the how, what am I Tony think about how, what are you trying to say yeah she's very um, by the book you know, she's prob- she probably yeah, learned at practiced. Avon. Yeah, it's yeah. at Avon school how to do that, you know. The, the hand motion. Yes. It's very captivating, but she uses it a lot throughout uh-huh. the movie. But then she said, you know, I'm not going to buy anything. She's like, I know. So, you know Have a good day. She, I like, drops it. Yeah. She drops it. And that just shows, like, she's she's not just, uh, she's a real person, you know. She's, I mean, she is a real person, but she, she has a lot more, there's going to be more depth to the character than just mm-hmm. this facade, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh. Did I you always get, like that scene. Do you get the impression from that scene that she goes to those same like fifteen oh, houses yeah. <laughs> yeah, once yeah, a month? Exactly. Just, yeah. She puts on her little hat and just makes the rounds through the neighborhood <laughs> once a month. Because that one lady goes, but "Weren't you just here?" And yeah. I was like, "Not. I was last season." <laughs> <laughs> do they ever name the town they're in? No. They say it's supposed to be Burbank, is what Tim Burton. Okay. Because I was listening, I was watching with commentary today, mm-hmm. and that's his depiction of his okay. his version of Burbank as what it was to him as a kid. That makes sense because it, it, it does feel like it's very sunny. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's almost like the pitch perfect. And everybody has like they, I mean the scenes where they're pulling out of their, their, uh, uh, part, you know, yeah. the, the driveways and they go all at the same time to work at the same way and they all have the same colored cars. They're all color coordinated. It's hilarious. Or, or at least the same style car. They're just different colors, just like the houses. Um, and then they all come home. Cause remember when all the women are waiting outside trying to get a peek at Edward and then all of a sudden they realize the husbands are coming home. <laughs> they so they start to scatter yeah. like roaches. There was one house that was like covered. Okay, I did. I just noticed it. It was like a tent, and it was like color yeah. like orange and green. It was like they were fumigating. I've yeah. never noticed it before. I thought that maybe it was cut out in the the VHS, you know, because it was four by three, and I was watching yeah. it widescreen. And I was like, how have I never noticed that house? Yeah, like it just seems so strange mm-hmm. that they had this house, and 
they never come around to explain why it's fuming no, or what's like, going on yeah. with yeah. it. I, I thought that maybe it was a deleted scene or something, but when I was reading about the making of and so on, nobody like there's there's it's nothing. There's maybe nobody it, ever mentions the weird house on the corner. And you never see it again. No, you never see it again. Maybe it was. My, my, my guess would be it would be something in production the house didn't turn out the way they wanted it. They well, I read did something like that, that. They filmed it in a real neighborhood in Tampa mm. or outside of Tampa. And so all those houses are real. Um, they just ask people permission to either paint them or put fake fronts on them to make them the correct colors okay. and so on. And there was one house in the neighborhood that just refused to participate. But after they started filming, they caved and they let them. So maybe they had started filming and they just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. they were going to like... I don't want to say CGI, but somehow do something to it to make that house look like the rest, and then it just or maybe that house looked. was really being fumigated when they filmed yeah. that scene. That might have been, yeah. yeah. It seems a pretty it, like the visual though is pretty Tim Burton-y, like the colors of the yeah, it's like orange and green. It was like a weird color, and it was color. almost like Beetlejuice esque. Yeah, it was. It really yeah. was. That's what it made me think of as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's definitely like a Beetlejuice esque, especially in the beginning, like vibes. The, the castle, especially, is so Tim Burton. It's I love that. Funny. I love the geography of this flat and then this like this, <laughs> this towering, you know. Uh, I love the cinematography. After oh. she leaves that woman's house, Peg, and she gets into her car and she adjusts the rearview mirror, and that's when we see yeah. first see the castle. Right. Just as a beautiful mm-hmm. um, production, you know, of, of the of, and then the angle of how. They had the car, and then she got in and adjusted the mirror, and then through the mirror we see the castle. It was just really well done. And what I like about the entrance to the castle, mm-hmm. too, is like it's very dark and ominous, like a mm-hmm. horror film, like a classic horror film when you go in. But then it lightens up because she sees all the work mm-hmm. on display right. and how mm-hmm. you know unique and distinct it is. And then she goes back, and it gets dark again until Edward comes out. Then you're completely at peace because Edward's so... As soon as you see Johnny Depp's face, mm-hmm. you're completely put at ease, and you say, "Oh, this poor guy," mm-hmm. you know. And she's like, "What happened to you?" You know, she's completely empathetic and compassionate towards him almost immediately. Yeah, it's funny. I yeah. watched my daughter go through that series of emotions because mm-hmm. you know she's four, and we were watching it, and she's like. When Diane Weiss kind of is starting in, she's a little scared. And then she sees all the, the bushes, and my daughter goes, Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh. Then she goes in, and it's a little creepy inside, <laughs> that weird bird statue thing. Yeah. And then she started getting a little freaked out again. But then when Johnny Depp, yeah, so, yeah. That castle is so cool, though. I mean, with the, I mean, that's, I think that's peak Tim Burton, like, artistry, like, you know, with, um, he probably does more of it in, uh, you know, kind of like the crooked circles, the staircase the spirals, that goes up. Yeah. And there's like no under the staircase, so it's just kind of like, mm-hmm. it's just kind of, yeah, it's really, um, I, I do have logical questions about the whole, like, castle thing, like, you know. You don't, it's Tim Burton, you don't have logical <laughs> you know, questions. Well, yeah. no, it's logical because uh, yeah. the Vincent Price character dies. Does anybody come and... Get him removed. Right. Yeah. Well, like, the same thing happens. Right, Robert, right. or well, not Robert Downey Jr. Anthony Michael Hall. They're all like, yeah, "There's the dead body." Yeah, I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just like leave. Yeah, yeah. they <laughs> both died. Just trust it's, us on this. They both good. died. I mean, you don't care. The, the movie's so fun to watch. But that was like, I mean, there was like because the furniture was covered when she walked into the castle, and I was like. Someone had to come in and remove the body of the dead man. They probably did, and Edward was just hiding. Edward was just yeah. hiding. Yeah. That's, probably, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. probably a good explanation. Because he was hiding when she first came in. Mm-hmm. You couldn't really see him yeah. in the back. So. Um, but the, to, uh, one thing I wanted to add to your point about Johnny Depp's uh, face in this movie, and that's one of the things that Tim Burton really 
was drawn by, by, you know, in Johnny Depp is the fact that he was able to act with his eyes and he compared him to sort of like a dog in a way, like being able to be very expressive, not verbally, but just with your eyes and the way, you know, that you move your face. Um, and so that's in some ways really what landed, you know, Johnny Depp the role. And, and Tim Burton also, I think, obviously, as we know now, found a kindred spirit in Johnny Depp because Johnny Depp was always playing these heartthrobs on TV, but really that wasn't who he was, and he, as a person, didn't really identify with that image that he had as an actor. So I think Tim Burton, you know, found a sense of solace in that because it's a kindred spirit of not really being what you seem. Um, so, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And, I mean, you know, I read somewhere that Johnny Depp only had a hundred and like 60 words yeah, that he spoke that too, yeah. in this whole movie of dialogue. You know what's interesting? You said about the Tim Burton, Edward Scissorhands as Tim Burton in this movie. Mm-hmm. He looks an awful lot like Tim Burton in oh. life with the hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, he made so Yeah, that, now that you said that, it's just mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh, that makes sense why Edward Scissorhands has a, all that. The big, frizzy hair. He yeah. looks just like Tim, Tim Burton, Burton did yeah. at that time, and that's, that's definitely not an accent. That no. was definitely a... Uh, has a good heart, but is misunderstood and often feared right. because of just how different that he was. Yeah, I like what you mentioned about Johnny Depp, how he can act with his eyes. And I think, I know Johnny Depp, I think he was heavily inspired by Chaplin and Keaton and all the mm-hmm. silent film stars. And he is one actor. I mean, it's one thing for someone who is noted as a teen idol or a heartthrob to go into serious acting. To me, it's an, this is so unique in that Johnny Depp, not only was he a great actor, he turned into this unique, idiosyncratic actor with like a, a genius-level uh, talent for character acting that only a handful of people can really reach. I mean, he, he creates these unique characters and unique quirks that very few actors can put on display. You know, Brando might be another actor I'd put up there, but he, he really is unique. There aren't too many actors of his generation that are like him that way. There's a physicality to mm-hmm. his acting that you just don't often see mm-hmm. in movies, uh, at least in, in leading men of his stature. You know, just, uh, I'm thinking of Benny and June and even the Pirates movies, you know, just, just how he brings his whole body into the performance and all of his gesticulations mm-hmm. and flamboyancies and uh, really pretty extraordinary the way he transforms himself for his roles. Um, I know his his later, more recent work, kind of, he catches some grief for it <laughs> because yeah. it's become almost a trope, you know, like, yeah. here goes Johnny Depp again, there he goes. Yeah. yeah, but uh, it, it's, nobody else is doing that, mm-hmm. you right. know, like, if you have that role, who are you going to call? You're going to call right. Johnny Depp because he's well, the guy who's going to show up yeah. and do it. You and know? do it well. Right. Yeah. Do it believable. You know, even in this movie, the way that he moved, he didn't really know how to walk. And I think part of that restriction is probably not really knowing how to actually walk, and then his attire right. probably limited his mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, but he kind of had this cute little like shuffle, you know, that he did, and then the way that he had, the, you know, moved his mm-hmm. arms with the scissors, and you know, one of my favorite scenes that I always that made me laugh when I was a kid, just because it's so innocent and so real, is when he first goes into Kim's room and he's sort of testing out the waterbed and he's a little caught off guard by it and he accidentally pokes it and of course it's spewing out water and he just very like gingerly moves, moves <laughs> yeah. the stuffed amber to yeah. cover the hole. That is something a child would do. 
Uh, you know, I mean, it was just so well done. I love the later scene where he actually has the whole waterbed explosion. Yeah, yeah. And oh, Kevin yeah. surprises yeah. him, and then he comes out in the hall, and he kind of has himself just uh, hunched yeah. over yeah. with his hands down, and he's wandering down the hall, and they have to turn him around and push him back yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very childlike mm-hmm. and innocent the way he <laughs> puts his head down and, and, and almost animal like. Yeah, yeah, yeah almost. You know, like yeah. Timber and kind of compared like it to a, his dog. Like a shamed yeah. dog, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the head down and like he knew he did something wrong, but he can't help it. I, I I mean I love the scene you pointed out because that's that's almost like a perfect reel for Johnny Depp mm-hmm. is the scene you're talking about with the water. But I, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it's yeah. just a quiet little scene. Like you say, he pokes a hole in that water, but it starts squirting up at him. He puts quietly puts that that uh, stuffed him. animal over there and then walks away. It is a beautiful <laughs> piece of comedy. It really is a beautiful piece of just pure physical comedy. There are no words; it's just him, mm-hmm. you know, reacting honestly to what's happening. In a way to him. that almost all of us would probably react. It, yeah, you know? can, right. you, can you imagine if you slept over at your friend's house and you actually <laughs> he did that in their guest bathroom or guest bedroom? You'd probably be doing the same thing. Before you told anyone. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> hide it, hide it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, it was just such an honest yeah. and, and very childlike behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, Another example is is when Alan Arkin takes him down to his man cave uh-huh. and he started drinking and his reaction to drinking, like, was it liquor he was drinking or something I like that? I think it was. Yeah. Probably bourbon yeah. or yeah, something, something like that. Dark liquor. I, I read that he created this unique sound and Tim Burton kept laughing off, off screen at all those sounds he was making, those gurgling sounds yeah. he was making. And just the way his face just, like, squeezes up and he collapses. Mm-hmm. And the guy is, is gifted with physical comedy. I mean, he just knows. But he's also so great in, in a dramatic way, too. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my my favorite, um, as much as I love Renona Ryder and I love the character, I, I I just completely love the relationship that Peg and Edward have. That's my favorite element. I think oh, of the yeah. entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's so charming and so endearing. And two of my favorite scenes are with them. And the the first one is when Edward starts cutting the dog's hair, and then he develops you know into cutting the women's hair. Well, it's just such a sweet moment. And, and, of course, it's enhanced by Danny Elfman's beautiful music mm-hmm. where he's got the lawn chair out and Edward takes a little dust feather and kind of wipes the hair off and then looks over at, you know, Diane Weist. And it's very just sweet because she was the last one waiting in line to get her hair cut. And you just know that he's going to take extra mm-hmm. good care of her, you know. And it just was so special and sweet. And she kind of, like, touches his hand as much as she can and sits down. And um, it just touches my heart, you know. It's like a mother and a son, um, and then the other scene I really liked too, and again, no words, you know, it was all yeah. just, just nonverbal. The other scene I, I really like um, is when they're on the talk show and the audience is asking him questions and the one lady says, you know, what, what, what do you think about getting prosthetics? And he says, oh, that, you know, that'd be nice. Or, and then the other lady chimes in, well, then you won't be special anymore. And before, he, he just kind of has this look on his face mm-hmm. as if he was slightly hurt by that. And Diane Weiss just very gracefully says, you know, Edward will always be special. And then looks at him and smiles, and then he smiles. And it's just so beautiful. It's so real. And mm-hmm. I get emotional thinking about yeah. it. It's just so yeah. sweet, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that earlier because that's a, a, an issue I've always had with this film. And it, and it has nothing to do with Winona Ryder as an actress. I think she's terrific. And she does the most she can with this role. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of a one-dimensional role. Oh, it's basically a yeah. one-note role. It's the trope teenage yeah. Girl. yeah. I mean, Anthony and Michael Hall's character is a bit more interesting because they add more grit. You know, that he has issues with his father and stuff like that. Yeah, they yeah. add on there. But to me, I agree with you. Like, And I think that's the issue I had in the second half of the movie. Is like, I think Edward's attraction to Winona Ryder's character 
doesn't feel earned. It feels like they just kind of threw it in there because they needed a love interest. They needed a, an actual antagonist. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the real conflict that I saw developing was between Edward and the town, which was empl- mm-hmm. you know, which was kind of um, the Kathy Baker character felt like the real antagonist as went on because she wasn't getting from Edward what she wanted, yeah. and then she was going to turn everybody on her. I thought that might have been a better switch for this film to take. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to critique a film as what it could have done, but I felt like the story that we were getting mm-hmm. should have been the, the core character was he he needed a parent more than he needed a girlfriend. I guess yeah. is what I was getting at. You right? know, and that's mm-hmm. true, and I noticed that, and I. I there's kind of a bummer in this movie at the end because Peg and him have a disillusion mm-hmm. to some extent because he he did, you know when he saves the boy, the boy yeah. it's yeah. another like he has all these miscommunications where he's not in the wrong but he gets in trouble for it and, and he never has an opportunity to explain he never has an opportunity. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of a bummer and and she has defended him all the way through and she's sympathetic and understanding of all the situation mm-hmm. that he's gone even she probably would have been even in that situation too exactly and I think it's this, I think exactly what you said. That relationship was so good, and mm-hmm. it builds up that that's the key relationship in the movie. Right. And it just kind of, I, I don't know what the reason is, but it kind of just got, the second half of the movie, it just kind of, that, that, that didn't end on a good note, and it kind of made me mm-hmm. feel bad yeah. in, in watching it, you know? Right. Yeah, it started off really strong, you know, um, watching this movie today with, you know, grown-up woman eyes versus, you know, the six-year-old child who first saw it. I love it when she take when she's at the castle and um, she says, "Well, the least I can do is just put some astringent on it to prevent infection." And then she just smiles and says, "I think you're going to come home with me." <laughs> and it's just I love that because that is so true to form to women. You know, when we see someone or something, an animal, a child, a man, whatever, that we feel like we need to to rescue in some capacity, we just take it on and. It just was, again, just a really honest response when she's like, I think you should come home with me. Um, and then the car ride home when, when he's really excited. And, and I thought, think it's sweet. And she says, you'd be excited. You have every reason to be excited. You know, that's it's a just, great scene. That, that support. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. that, just that beautiful support. And, um, you know, she was the kind of mother that I think we all wish we had. And some of us were lucky enough to have um, in our lives on a daily basis. But... Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that there was more of a maternal need there, or paternal need, mm-hmm. than um, necessarily any kind of romance. And even in the end, when Winona, when Winona Ryder realized that she did care for Edward Scissorhands, it doesn't necessarily seem really romantic. It just it seems sweet. You know, I know she says that she loves him and gives him a kiss, and then he says goodbye. But I found myself kind of questioning, is that more of like a, um, is it just a love like that you have? So, you know, sometimes in our relationships we can really love someone. doesn't mean that we're in love with them and we want to be with them in that way. It just means that we have, you know, a strong respect and we really love them. And there is a sense of wanting to protect that person. Maybe it's on a sibling level or maybe it's on just a platonic level. Mm. So I am still kind of question, I do question that relationship because part of me feels like maybe it is more platonic and she wants to protect him and she like when she tells him to run you know and she stands up for him at the end because she realizes he's 
he really cares about her family and her. If you if you take the romantic angle out of that relationship, it works a lot better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's more believable. And yeah, he, yeah, yeah, and even at the end when she she, she you know um, does the cover up for him and, yeah. and you know says I love you. When you tell someone that you love them, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're mm-hmm. saying I'm in love with you and I want to be with you forever. It just means I care about you. You know, like yeah. you touched my heart. And so when I was watching it this morning, that's sort of how I was interpreting that more mm-hmm. than a full-on romantic, yeah. oh, I want you to be my lover. Um, yeah, I but, mean, but, but I do, it's probably, it's probably subjective, you know, and, and what you think. And I don't know what the original intent was with that storyline. Yeah, I, I almost get the sense, based on the marketing of the movie, mm-hmm. where it's very strong, Winona... That's true, yeah. And because they were the two big stars, that maybe there was like someone they saw a screening of it, and they're like, you gotta throw in some romantic. And I, I agree with you. I, I, I think it's interesting. Winona's the one, one, one of the few people that doesn't fully accept Edward as soon as they meet him. Everybody yeah. else is like, this is great. Yeah. I don't care. You got scissors for hands throughout. You know, everybody else just takes it in stride. Yeah. You know, or tries either, to take advantage of it. Takes advantage of it. Yeah. Like that lady, the Ambrosia salad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> They're either excited or they just take it in stride. It's like the fa- biggest yeah. fancy in this yeah. movie is that people would be accepting of someone that's different yeah. right off the bat. That's the thing that I found so interesting about this movie because usually when movies, when it's about the other, quote unquote, it's usually mm-hmm. everybody hates that person immediately and they shun them. But that that individual has to win everybody over gradually towards the end and they're like, well, we, now we understand you. Now we accept you as one of us. You're a human just like us. This movie, everybody immediately, like you said, accepts Edward and I love watching that. Yeah. I love the fact that Edward's this this outsider and very eccentric, as eccentric a person as you're ever going to meet. And he has scissor hands, all right? Uh, and he multiple looks, scissor he's, hands. He's like Not Robert. One scissor on one hand. Giant scissor. Like, right. Giant scissor. He's Robert. Like, what do you call him? What, what are those things called? Shears. 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 Right, right. Shears. Shears. Yeah. He should have been called Edward Shearhand. Yeah, I know. He's like, he's Robert Smith from The Cure with scissor hands coming yes. into suburbia, and everyone just immediately embraces him. And I love watching that. But then, you know, gradually they start to turn on him because they're not getting what they want from him. But that's an interesting point. I don't know if Burton was trying to say everybody loves you immediately until they find reasons to not like you. Because usually these type of stories, they go in a different direction. I wonder what he was trying to do. And, and I think it's interesting because in the very beginning, everybody embraced him but Kim, Winona Ryder, mm-hmm. Scott said. But then in the end, she was the only one standing in his corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's an interesting turn of, yeah. of the table. Well, yeah, it definitely you know? it, it takes your standard movie tropes and just turns them completely mm-hmm. on their ear, you know. And, and it, it is interesting the way that that ending finds a way to feel reassuring and uplifting. And mm-hmm. you know, Winona has this memory of dancing in the snow, and and in reality, it's hey loner, go back to your castle. You're there forever by yourself. <laughs> I'm never coming to see you again. Like, yeah. That's really what happens at the yeah. end of the movie, and uh, it's it's he literally it's lives like three houses down. Well, the backyard goes. Her granddaughter even says you can still go see him. No, no. Yeah, she says I want him to remember me the way I was, which oh, no. to some extent I can understand yeah, I can that understand. when you've aged to that degree, and yeah. we get the sense that maybe Edward's immortal because he's not yeah. really human. Um, I can I can understand that, but but yeah, may, you know, it does make you question. Well, why didn't she go back? 
And maybe she did. We'll never know. They don't really explore that. Right. But yeah, it, it, I mean, the snow is falling. He's he's right there. Yeah. <laughs> you could throw a rock and hit him. He's that... actually making a snow sculpture of you. <laughs> <laughs> She's a narcissist, basically. She's like, I don't love you, but now that you've honored me to that high level, I, I like you. The one redeeming quality of, of the romance for me is that like the the ice sculpture scene because it's so beautifully aesthetically pleasing that you forget about like the issues they have with the script and everything when you when you watch that but to me this always felt like in the beginning this is really about a movie about family and by extension the town and how edward comes in and how they all convey i don't think that romance fits comfortably in this what he's trying to set up yeah you know, and I think that's what hurts. Now, Winona Ryder, uh, I think she's an interesting actress to cast because it's against type. It's not the, like the character she played in Heather's or Beetlejuice, where yeah. she was kind of the outsider. Mm-hmm. She's playing like the ultimate like insider, popular girl in school, blonde. You know, Did Tim Burton actually addressed that on the commentary. He said, you know, he worked with Winona and Beetlejuice and really liked her. And at the time, she was engaged to Johnny Depp, so there was that connection. And so he welcomed, you know, having her to be that role. And he said it was kind of funny because Winona is not that at all she's probably more like the characters you see in Heather yeah, yeah. Right. and so for her to be this you know really um, normal person and that's also why they dyed her hair really light they want he wanted her to look very light and angelic as opposed to everybody else it's, it's it, a, well, right. go ahead. I was just gonna say it's strange, it's strange seeing her that way because mm-hmm. it is so against form. How about Anthony Michael Hall? Oh too? man! <laughs> I mean, that's like two people that are against tight playing the opposite of what everybody's known them for. Anybody who grew up in the '80s with Anthony Michael Hall <laughs> in those John Hughes movies, where he's the skinny nerd, and now he's playing this bulked up. I you want to know a funny story about that mm-hmm. in high school? One of my girlfriends who I was in theater with. We were talking about Edward Scissorhands, and somehow she go, she brought up Anthony Michael Hall. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, he's the bully in Edward Scissorhands. I said, wait a minute. The nerd from the Breakfast Club and, <laughs> and um, what you call it, 16 Candles, is the, the bully in Edward Scissorhands? I said, ah, no way. We got in this huge thing about it. So much so that we pulled out the DVD and put it on, and she, of course, proved me wrong. <laughs> I just was, like, so unwilling to believe that that was him because... It was shocking. It oh was shocking to, to see him. Because he disappeared. Totally. You know, like 16 yeah. Candles, uh, Breakfast Club. That was like, what, 84, 85? Yeah, the mid-80s. And yeah. this came also, out in 1990, so he was gone for a while. Like, he was on SNL a little bit. But oh, for the yeah. most part, you didn't really see him. And then all of a sudden, there he is, and he's like double, double Anthony Michael Hall. Like, <laughs> he's like Anthony Michael Hall on steroids. I know, yeah. He hawked up for this movie. My, my, my favorite, this made me laugh. And it's, and I don't even think it's intended to be funny, but his whole thing for stealing his dad's stuff so he can buy a van. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and put a mattress in the <laughs> 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 I'm saying, like, how much does he think VCRs are worth? You know, yeah, he's got a VCR with four heads and a CD player. We're going to get a van. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know any kid that ever is like, how do you get, man? We, yeah, mission accomplished. They got, you know. <laughs> and he says there, he's like, don't you want me to have my own van? You know? <laughs> You know, he's good in the movie, too. He's yeah. really good. I mean, yeah, I have no good. problem with his performance. I mean, no. he's excellent. I mean, the guy's a really good actor. Yeah. Um, but it was just so jarring when you find out that that's Anthony Michael Hall. You the know. first scene you see him, and they come in with a flaming, like the flames, the flames on the side. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why. In that town, a van would be probably very exotic and... and 
Especially if you had a mattress in the back. <laughs> right, a mattress yes. in the back. The whole, the whole motivation for the robbery is just kind of creepy. Like, yeah. He was I creepy. Want, I want my creepy van for you to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> he's the only character in the movie, too, that feels like he's from 1990. Everybody else feels like Kennedy era, you right. know, like 1960. But then he comes in, it's like, well, that's oh, yeah. the one thing I wanted to talk about, too, that I've noticed. That, for the most part, this movie is very timeless in that it doesn't have a definitive decade. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We see so many elements and inspiration from the 60s, from the attire to, to some of the, just the home life mm-hmm. and <clears throat> the community. But then it seems like the younger crowd, the kids, seem to be more adjusted to the 80s yeah. mm-hmm. in, in, in their clothing and their demeanor and how they talk. So it's interesting. It's sort of like this hybrid, made-up time period, which I personally really liked. Yeah, I like yeah. that it doesn't have a, a definitive decade because... Like the fairy tale story, it makes it timeless, and I think that that's really fitting. But that—that's funny you said that because that's something I noticed this morning when I watched it again too. Is that the kids seem like they're very much of the time, but the rest of the community doesn't. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it is interesting how it's just kind of a generalized America mm-hmm. with no specific time. You know, this is just suburbia. In America, and you can pretty much plop in in any decade, and it's gonna be more or less yeah. a variation yeah. of this. And here's the seedy underbelly, you know. Well, I think it because well, I think it technically would be a fairy tale, mm-hmm. is what this movie is. Yeah. Or, Especially, or maybe a fable. It's probably fable. maybe more closely related to a fable. Well, the second I half is you on that. The second half is definitely in like a mm-hmm. like a. Who are the fairy tale guys? Grim. It's very an old fashioned grim because there's a dark aspect to it. Someone <laughs> dies, you know. There's there's tragedy. I mean, the grim fairy tales are very violent. Hence the name Grim. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so yeah, and then it's almost like two different movies in that mm-hmm. sense. One is part parody, part Would you like want to satire. Know a, a, fun, a fun fact. <clears throat> so this movie was originally supposed to be like a musical. So that, and, 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 and Tim Burton kind of went to, for, like, forgoed that at the end because he just felt like it would kind of overcomplicate things with the music. And, but so that's probably why the screenplay, and if you think about it, was written very much of like a, <coughs> excuse me guys, sorry, <clears throat> very much like a stage play where you have, yeah. you know, your beginning, you know, your climax, your intermission, and then this really crazy ending. And, uh-huh. um, <clears throat> but the one thing I, that, that you said, Eric, that, that, <clears throat> brought this thought in my mind was you know you talked about this happy suburban life and then this really dark under you know seedy underbelly and and I love that juxtaposition of what we see is not really what we're what we what's there you know because the whole town is so vibrant and so colorful and and just looks very lively and and welcoming but it's really not there are these really dark characters and and a lot of messed up things happening on in, in the neighborhood. Um, I think the Boggs family is kind of the exception. I, I do think they're they are what what we see is what we get with them. But the, but for the rest of the people, well, even they <laughs> shun the the organ lady. I can't remember the character's name. Uh, Odell, Odell Jones is the yeah, actress. She has like a weird yeah. name. But, she uh, had a weird name in the movie too. She, you know, the whole movie it was kind of driving me crazy because I knew I had seen her somewhere else. It was just this last time when I was watching it, and I kept thinking Summer Glau. Like her, her mannerisms were reminding me of Summer Glau from Firefly. But then uh, about halfway through the movie, it, it, it's the most random thing. But she's the waitress in Natural Born Killers. Oh, wow. who's the lucky one? Oh, you know, like yeah. that, that whole well, scene. She and Dumb and Dumber. I, 
she, 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 she might have been. One of the, she might have been. One of the people tracking them. On the, there was a big guy that dies, and then there's the other. Was that her? I don't know. I don't want to stop the podcast. Everybody, stop the press. Stop the press. Stop the press. Find out. Even even the uh, the primary family kind of shuns her because doesn't she wander into the backyard and kind of you know do her whole he's cursed he's up the devil yes, thing and the dad's like get out of here does. Loody. You know? But the best <laughs> is when she's sitting there playing her organ. Oh, and yeah. with everyone now. And he makes that really demonic, like, yeah. hedge. He, he uh, trims that hedge into, like, these really demonic-looking things so it looks like it's looking in our window. But interestingly Where's enough, when they turn on Edward, all of a sudden she's accepted back uh-huh. into the group. Yeah, like, yeah like, she's like, I told you. Now they're on the same page, and so, you know, she's no longer shunned. We're going to shun this other guy, so... We can only shun one at a time. I do like the song she's playing on the keyboard, but uh-huh. him, and she adds like all the like. She has yeah, yeah, reverb. <laughs> she's actually quite. Yeah, I know. Well, that that scene just—it's a throwaway. It's kind of like a throwaway comedy relief, you know, because it's in the height of the craziness when Edward's uh-huh. running away and right. stuff. But it just always cracks me up. <laughs> I love it. the window as if it's the most thing. awful thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that scary. <laughs> I love the scene uh, where where she finally approaches him, like she's confronting Edward. He goes, "We're not cheap." <laughs> I don't know. It's like one of the few lines he utters in the movie. We're not cheap, just kind of casually. Yeah. And walks towards her. <laughs> yeah, I like how he's walking towards her when she's saying it, and then he turns around and walks back. It's just, it's just, there's no. It's just a thing that I, I don't know if a giant depth decided to do it, but it wasn't like there's no. Um, but then Alan Arkin writes her off as oh, she's just a crazy yeah. old lady, you know. <laughs> He's like probably a fair statement. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's his opinion of almost everybody in the yeah. movie. Like he just yeah. kind of is like in yeah. his own movie. Yeah, like, <laughs> like just kind of hanging out, sitting yeah. in his lawn chair, yeah. watching the world go by. And if pressed into action, he'll participate. But for the most part, he's just kind of a casual observer to the goings on in his family. The, oh, the one thing I, I really thought was funny too, visually, and it was a contradiction to the way that the rest of the town looked, was when they went to the bank to get a loan. Mm. The bank was this most Bleak building. Yes, it was, big yes. It was just like gray and, yeah. and just ugly and no color to it, no no curb appeal, and it just said bank. Right. And Not like, even like a name. Just the words bank. are like bleeding too. Like, yeah, yeah, it just looked like this drab, awful place. I noticed that too. I was like, wow. <laughs> Which I'm sure was intentional. Yeah, so. <laughs> what I love about the bank scene, and it goes into the theme of like how the town people embrace him, is like even though he didn't have any collateral or anything they could use. They advised him on how to do it correctly. It was like it's like everybody embraces him immediately without questioning. Where did this guy with scissor hands come from? Right, right. You and know, is he going to strike me in any moment? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a possibility. <laughs> they were all helping him. It was like, no, we can't do it legally, but here's the things you can do to get there, you know. Well, even the cop that arrests them. Oh yeah. Loves them. Yeah, and they into the court and, and that guy's psychoanalyzing them. He's like, he's been up there and he's, he's delusional he lives in this imaginative world so can we release him oh he'll be fine he'll be fine <laughs> Great. I totally forgot about this scene. No, he's good, he's good. He's he goes, but is he gonna be okay he was saying that twice the cop was awesome yeah, like, he was a great, great. guy yeah. you know? and the veteran was a, was also really nice to Edward that he meets like don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything because of your disability yeah. right. well he turns on him too he's like yeah, because yeah, then he's like, keep me posted. He says <laughs> yeah, right. to the kid, whatever. I think what it's saying is just like, it's about conformity, really. It's just like when one person says, 
we used to love this guy, now we hate this guy. Everyone starts following in suit because, like, oh, that guy said it. He must be bad. Well, there's this through line of gossip throughout the very apparent, you know, especially the telephone, you know, all the women are calling each other and, and, uh, you know, saying who's, uh, you know, pegs with this new guy and, you know. (laughs) But then when they find out who it is, <laughs> you think, oh, you got this hand. We're perfectly fine there. Going back to what you said about conformity, it, it makes me think of Winona Ryder's character, Kim. She was the only one in the beginning who didn't embrace him, and then again, in the end, the only one who really mm-hmm. um, wanted to help him and believed in him. And so, in some ways, to me, that's a testament of her sense of strong character, that she doesn't conform, and that she chooses to believe what she wants to believe in, and follow that her own personal sense of self and belief system versus what everybody else is telling her she needs to be doing yeah you know that's a great point i love what you just said there because it, it really is a movie about optics and perception mm-hmm. it's like ed is the same guy edward is the same person from the beginning of the film to the end of the film well he's he gets bitter <laughs> but uh the townspeople when one person loves them they all love them mm-hmm. when one person hates them they all hate them and you're like, Kim is the one person that has to make her own, like, it's like, the, the, what's about truth is, like, you have to approach it yourself before you make a decision. You become skeptical at first, then you meet them, then you say, okay, this is who this person is, because I spent time with them. And she stays loyal to him afterwards, because she knows the truth, mm-hmm. where everyone else is just going by their perception of Ed, or whatever Ed means to them in the moment. Mm-hmm. If Ed, if Ed or is whatever a, they were told about Ed. Yes. Because some of them have no idea what's really going on, they just... No, you know, the telephone game. He's basically a Orshak test for everybody. (laughs) It's like, whatever you want to see with that is what you're going to get for them. Like, if he's he's an object of lust, you have that. If he's a a surrogate son, he's that. If he's the devil, he's that. It's whatever you want him to be Mm -hmm. for every every single person. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we uh, we haven't talked about Vincent Price. No. Oh, he's so wonderful. Yeah, that's just... I mean, that whole scene, the, the, the vignettes with him in it are, are awesome. They I are. Mean, the one where he's making the cookies and he's dancing through the... Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of dancing through the machine. And can I just point out that true to Vincent Price form, he's wearing an ascot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I Vincent. love him. I love him, too. I love... Here's the thing I love about that character, all right? It's a cookie maker that somehow brings an inanimate object to full sentient sentience. Right. Well, but he's the inventor, Sean. He's an inventor. <laughs> he's the and, inventor. Not, and, just like you said, the inventor. When you said about logic, I said the reason I buy this is because yeah, I buy that Vincent Price would create somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't question that at all because it's Vincent Price. He, I just see him as a guy that would get that done. You know, and I, you know, I'm willing to say that those cookies were probably pretty good. Yeah, I would yeah. say they're pretty awesome. They looked yeah. amazing when they were coming off that conveyor belt. <laughs> He he's so great. I mean, he was so great at being Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. I think there's some guys that are just. I'm glad they existed because there's there's nobody else like them. Vincent Price is one of those guys, and I know he was a personal hero of Tim Burton's. He, uh, he grew up in Burbank. Mm-hmm. I think Escape for him in suburbia was watching classic horror films, and Vincent Price was his hero. And the really cool thing about that story is years later when. Uh, Tim Burton produced his first stop-motion short, which really put his name on the map in Hollywood. It was called Vincent. It was a tribute to Vincent Price with this kid, oh, modeled yeah. again after Tim Burton, who worshipped Vincent Price. And guess who he got to narrate it? Vincent Price. How amazing. That's, and, and it was like one of the few instances where a hero lives up to the hype 
you know, it really becomes an important part of your life later on. That's a really cool side story to all of this. You kind of get the feeling that Vincent Price was, like, just a cool guy. Like, he's just down, oh, yeah. down yeah. for whatever. Yeah. Sure, um, Michael Jackson, I'll do your song, you know? Like, and sure. that's one of the best raps ever. I mean, it really is. It's like, I mean, I, I that song really kicks in the high gear on Vincent Price. <laughs> Pops up, because you it's know. Vincent Price. I mean, laughing yeah. at the end. Come on, it's yeah, so yeah. great. Yeah. Um, but but the one thing that Tim Burton did say today in the commentary is that um, he said, you know, Vincent Price was was exactly that, just an all around really nice, kind, enthusiastic, a very positive person. He said he was a joy to have on set and really embraced, you know, that movie and had a good time. And so, I mean, again, that just speaks volumes of of. Vincent Price and what kind of person he really was. Because, you know, Tim Burton was still pretty start, you know, he was still new and kind of starting out and finding his way. And that was, Edward Scissorhands was, was a big deal for Tim Burton. It was very different from some of the other projects that he worked on. So that's really cool. It is. Yeah. You know, uh, the great thing about Vincent Price, too, is Vincent yeah. Price w- had fun being Vincent Price. Exactly, yeah. He was on The Muppet Show, and he would turn Kermit into a vampire mm-hmm. and stuff, and it was fun to watch. He, like, he got everything he was part of. Mm-hmm. You would see him in commercials where he's trying to scare kids for like horror books, mm-hmm. and he just... He had no problem just going straight into Vincent Price mode. He's a, I mean, he's a great actor. I mean, he's... Yeah. I think before he went into the horror, he was like a leading man type because he was... He's a good-looking, wasn't yeah. he? Really, I mean, a good-looking older man, even in this movie. But he, he was so charismatic, he could do all this, 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 this great horror movies and elevate all this material right. beyond what it was because he's so good. <laughs> and it, it just, I think this was his last movie, right? It's one of his what last movies. Movie it was his last movie. He yeah. died shortly after. Yeah. yeah. And it just, yeah, it pretty much... I mean, when he's reading, it's like boring. He reads the poetry and he laughs. And that's he says, crazy. go ahead, Edward, laugh. <laughs> when he dies in the movie, too, it's almost like a final tribute to him on film because he died soon afterwards. Like, you're actually like, oh, yeah, this was his last performance. And he still resonates in pop culture today because Bill Hader Bill played. Bill Hader. Yeah. He's so amazing. I love, <laughs> so those great. are like my favorite. Yeah, me too. Yeah. The Vincent Price specials. I love the one where he's like stuck on the elbow. Like, really, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I know when he auditioned for SNL, he was doing guys like uh, James Mason and, yeah. and Vincent Price because he's a huge film like all of us. He's like, he loves old movies. And Lauren Michaels goes, these are all great, Bill, but why now? <laughs> and I, I'm like, absolutely yeah. now. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. I love those Vincent Price specials. And I speaking do. of James Mason, John Hamm. John Hamm. So oh. good. Um, I'm glad we're not the only ones that laugh at that. Oh, yeah. I, actually, I was just fantastic. watching that the other day. Um, yeah, I showed, I showed a friend that the other day because as much as I love those Vincent Price just so funny. My wife yeah. and I are late to the James Mason game. We watched Lolita maybe like five or six years ago, and we were like, how have we missed this guy? Like, he's yeah. so incredible. He's so good. And uh, then Kristen Wiig is 2D Garland. Oh, yeah, yeah. I brought the pill. I brought the m and she's like, and they've, they've got um, M's on them for mine and mine and mine. She does every classic actress. I love the Judy Garland, but she even does like, like Gloria Swanson and right. all these people. Catherine Hepburn I love. When she came to the Christmas party as Catherine Hepburn and she brought like a dead squirrel or whatever. <laughs> She's like, I marched up here on my own. <laughs> I love those to death. Those are some of my favorite sketches they've done in the last ten years. But yeah, I mean it just it just goes to show that like these icons still resonate over the years. They're like t- timeless and I think Vincent Price is timeless. Well Vincent Price was you think about it, if he died shortly after this movie, he was relevant for his 
whole career. Well, yeah. he brought like some gravity to this movie. I mean, yeah. because really the only big name in this movie at the time was Winona Ryder, and uh, I guess she's the leading lady. I guess, but it's it's a relatively smaller part, and yeah. you know, yeah. to to kind of land Vincent Price, yeah. you know, for this film, it's kind of a well, Colin Arkin was pretty decently well regarded he, he always has been yeah, I think yeah. you know even that wasn't like oh I, I think but probably a lot of people would watch it like oh Alan Arkin <laughs> I, I came to Alan Arkin late because he's just a guy like you just once you see him in a the movie then you then you see him in every movie you've seen he's always yeah. a pleasant surprise yeah. well, and he's always up. so good at playing whatever character he's playing that you forget how many movies he's really in because yeah. mm-hmm. he just assumes these roles and you're just like oh Alan Arkin's in this right he's so like real as an actor like he just he feels like someone you know he does yeah. like he yeah. seems like a suburban dad like i grew up having girlfriends that had dads like mm-hmm. him yeah like, hey ed you yeah. know that's just and she's yeah. like edward dear <laughs> i love alan arkin and virtually everything and i think this is one of the first films i had actually seen alan arkin in where i got a kind of feel for him because I think in the '80s, like he was big in the '60s. You know, Wait Until Dark was like his breakout. Yeah. You know, and he said he felt so bad. He's like, I always felt so awful terrorizing Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> <You're so sweet." laughs> and he continued through the '70s, but I think in the '80s you didn't see him as often on, in movies. But by the '90s, he was like in Glengarry Glen Ross. He was in this, and of course now he just continues on like a Little, little Miss Sunshine. Sunshine. He's yeah. outstanding yeah. in it. Um, and he's hilarious in this movie. I mean, that scene where he takes him into the band cave and he starts like saying, "This is lemonade." And he's looking upstairs just to make sure his oh, wife yeah, doesn't see what he's drinking. Is I like hysterical. when he's like giving him the ethics lecture, lecture at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other one where he's like, "I agree with your dad. You know, you're gonna earn it." <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> he goes. It's good that you're making uh, your way in the world. Edward Scissorhands, by the way, is is a go-getter. Like, he does not rely on anybody. He just keeps going and finding things to do to keep himself constructive. I like the talk show host, too. Is another character I like. Is that, uh, was that John Davidson? I forgot to look it up and see if it was him. But he was, uh, I don't know if any of you guys remember That's Incredible. It was like the 70s variety show. He was That's one of the, Incredible! He was one of the three hosts of that, and I think that was him. Might have been. Uh, it's a great no, parody no of those. But yeah, he, he just nailed it. Just with that, you know, that shiny tan face. And the, uh, <laughs> he did. It's yeah. like, do you have a special someone? He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's typical. But that was every talk show back then, yeah. too. Um, you know, I, another thing, like we talked about, there are two elements we really should address behind the scenes, and the first is Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. And when I think of Tim Burton, I feel like, you know, when you think of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, you think of John Williams because John Williams added so much to those movies. Sure. I feel the same parallel is there with Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. It's like a match made in heaven. It is. Uh, Danny Elfman, I think, is a genius. I think he is a musical genius. I think some people have taken knocks at him recently because they feel like he's his work has been watered down a bit. It's not as distinct as it used to be. I, I was just going to say that. I don't know other people felt that way, but yeah. I, I do feel like... This movie is kind of what I consider to be like prime Elfman, you know. Yeah. Like he had this definite mm-hmm. sound in the in the late eighties and early nineties, where you know the children's choir kind of in the background, and you could always you could say, "Oh, that's a Danny Elfman score." Like you would know it. It's the second you heard it, you'd say, "Oh, that's Danny Elfman." And now sometimes I see movies, and then at the end I'm surprised, like, mm-hmm. "Oh, that was Danny Elfman." Like, I, I would have never well, known. You, you know, know like, it makes me wonder: is that is that 
is he catering to a direct a certain director style or maybe what they're asking him for that particular job? You know, I get the sense that Tim Burton has a lot of respect for Danny mm -hmm. Elfman. It gives him a lot of creative freedom to yeah, really bring bring his music to light versus I would like a score that sounds of this nature. You know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, he was from Oingo Boingo originally, which was like this like new wave pop band. It was really quirky, offbeat, shocking that Danny Elfman being in a quirky, offbeat band. And then the first score he ever wrote was Pee-wee's Big Adventure for Tim Burton, mm -hmm. and that kind of established him as as an orchestra, you know, somebody that can actually write a film score. Which is such a great mm -hmm. score. Oh, it mean. is. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and early on, I, I think when he was working with directors other than Burton. Those Elfman-isms weren't as prominent. Like, there's a great score he did from a movie called Midnight Run. It was in the late 80s with Robert De Niro yeah. and, and Charles Grodin. It's like a road comedy. But it's a very bluesy, jazzy score. It doesn't sound anything like he's, anything he's ever done. But it's terrific. But then, after Beetlejuice and Pee-wee and the Tim Burton movies... Batman. That's when what we identify as Danny Elfman's sound came into play. And uh, he's brilliant at it. I mean, it's just uh, the, there's that the sick of I, I don't know exactly how you describe it, but there's he's very piano driven in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. it, it's all over the place. It's really frantic. Mm -hmm. That you kind of that's probably his trademark sound. I always think of those pianos and and also kind of like the fiddles that are kind of yeah, off yeah, key. Fiddle, yeah. yeah, yeah, like the Beetlejuice, the classic Beetlejuice right. sound. Yeah, this score is really really good. I mean, it's, it's it goes it's, without saying, but it's it's. It it has all the isms. It has a big, you know, when she's the snow's falling on her, it has a big like, you know, uplifting score. But it also has a quirky, you know, when they're all we all talk about the scene when they all pull out of the driveway because yeah. that's all it is is a visual and a score. Yeah, and that's what makes it. But it's got well, it comes from. I, I feel like during the time period that this film was made, scores were more distinct mm -hmm. and recognizable mm -hmm. like I, I was trying to think of recent films where I remember like if I heard the score I would know what it is um, my wife and I play this game sometimes where we one of us is driving the other one will get out the phone and we'll play mm -hmm. scores from movies and the other one has to guess who it is it's yeah. surprisingly oh, more difficult than you would think yeah. it's mm -hmm. always like oh I know what that is ah, and then it turns yeah. out to be Harry Potter and you're like oh god <laughs> yeah. but anyhow the, the only recent film where the score really made an impression where I would remember it is Wonder Woman just because yeah. like it has that weird mm -hmm. kind of guitar riff yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and exactly um and uh back when this film was made you know like I still recognize a lot of the scores from mm -hmm. this time period and uh it just seems as though movies have moved into a more Generically, and like, have you guys been victimized by uh, Justice League yet? We we saw it. Yeah, yeah. Danny Elfman did the score. Danny Elfman did the score. Yeah, and, and the only times where I ever noticed the score was when he brought in pieces of the old scores. You yeah, know, when he brought in the classic Superman score, and when mm -hmm. he brought in the classic Batman score for a moment, like those shining moments, I kind of perked up and went, huh. But beyond that. You know, it's just kind of there. It's, and yeah. I think it's a shame. Yeah, I think there's been a there's been a definite emphasis on kind of like a they're just churning out scores, like like, like it, the Marvel movies. Yeah, like it, but no no memorable scores in those things. Loud and yeah. 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 Uh, 
you know, all the only ones that the only scores of the Marvel movies that actually are by guys from that era, like Alan Silvestri did the Avengers, and that's the only memorable score. Right. Well, Captain America, I think, is a terrific theme. And Alan Best- kind of gets overlooked from the first one. The first, first one. And Alan Silvestri did that too. Yeah. And then uh, Danny Elfman did a version of the Avengers, and two guys did the last Avengers movie, but he did one, and it, you can definitely tell the advancement of the score, but it's not the same as like his other... There, there's a backstory with the scores on the Marvel films, actually, from what you guys are talking about. Apparently, the guy that was originally in charge of Marvel Studios, not Feige, the guy that was Feige's boss, mm-hmm. Feige always wanted to fight for really good composers, because superhero films need those iconic themes that people love, love to hear, and he wanted that, but that guy didn't want to spend that much money on composers. He's like, no, I don't want to spend the money. Get us generic scores. Plug it so in. that's why, there's a reason why it's a generic, where at least with, for all the flaws that the DC films have, one strength they've always had is film scoring, like, in general. Like, they've always, like, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, right. they know how to compose. Well, Hans Zimmer, they, they had, and he could be hit or miss because he can either just drone it out. Man of Steel, right? Did he yeah, he did. Man of Steel was really yeah. good. That's I like Excellent score, yeah. yeah. But he can drone it out sometimes. And like the, his Batman scores, I thought, if you compare it to Elfman's, this, yeah. there's no. You know, another art that Burton mastered that I always thought was distinct in his films and during this period that's gone are title sequences at the beginning of films. Yes. Where they take you into the world and, you know, like the Batman symbol and the first yeah. Batman and the Beetlejuice, the model. He talked town. about that in the commentary. He, he wanted to set the right tone. That's why the Edward Scissorhands comes in kind of cockeyed. And, and if you notice, it opens up. Oh, it's like so great. Like scissors. Yeah, that, that yeah. whole yeah. sequence is really uh-huh. great. Yeah, and maybe that, that is why scores are not as recognizable anymore because so many movies get away from that. They, I mean, mm-hmm. I think the first one I can think of is Die Hard where it just slams Die Hard, boom, on the screen and <laughs> off it goes. They all, maybe that was Die Hard 2 that did that. They, uh, they, all, they just open, all of them open cold now. There's yeah. no title sequencing. That's why, like, when you see a Bond film or something that has to happen. Or even something from the 60s, like, you know, when, you you all know I'm a big Audrey Hepburn fan, so Henry Mancini is very Mm -hmm. synonymous with Audrey Hepburn, and you think of the fun, like, the beginning sequence to charade. Yeah, Yeah. with the, you know, the, the, um... Well, I guess one genre that does it, just like you you were talking about, Guardians doesn't open these sequences on their movies. That's true. They they, they They have have music, yeah. They have music and titles. Which is great. But they use pop songs. Like, like, yeah. They use pop songs, but, so, but, but still, I think it, it's an opening sequence. I think movies got away from it because people just want to get right to the movie. Right. And, and that's because James Gunn is a distinctly talented filmmaker that James wants to put his idiosyncrasies. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's another Tim Burton-esque guy yeah. in the sense that he wants past to put his own personal stamp which is great the movie. Well, you can see it. You can tell when you're watching it who it is. Just yeah. Like Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. I, I love him, you know. Um, but that's something I miss. I miss really distinct scores. I mean, there are in other films. Like you, 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 I've seen films recently, and I think um, I'm trying to think of a movie. The movie that came out. It's I can't believe I can't think of it. The one with ben, Benedict Cumberbatch, where he played. Um, oh, the Imitation Game. Imitation Game yeah, had a really one. great score. Yeah, that's yeah. a great movie. Um, the Godzilla. The Godzilla. One of the few strengths of the, the Godzilla movie from a few years ago had was a great score. And that opening and, sequence as well in that one. Yeah, it did. Um, but I always Bert- think of like um, you know I'm a big David Lynch fan and his movies always have really good scores as well mm-hmm. you know Angela Baldamenti just has that sound and mm-hmm. and I think some of his movies when I, I'm trying to think about like Mulholland Drive and, and Blue Velvet I, I believe they have title scores too don't they? Yeah, I, I I don't know if they have titles. I know they have a unique opening yeah. credit sequence. Like Blue Velvet had the blue the blue the white curtain coming down. Yeah, and then the, um, 
But anyway, yeah, you know, I've said it so many times on the podcast before. I'm a huge advocate for the marriage of music and motion, and I think that they really too. It's a it's important to have a really solid score that mm-hmm. helps the tone and the feel and the the overall mood and, and and message of the movie. So watching Edward Scissorhands, any Tim Burton movie really is is always refreshing in that respect because I know I'm gonna get that fulfillment because right. I really enjoy that in movies. Uh, you know, and you're right. A lot of times now movies just they don't they're they're lacking that. And yeah. it's sad because music evokes so much emotion and it really ties us in mm-hmm. um, to the story. And I think there's a lot of talented composers out there that mm-hmm. it's like give us a chance to do a, a great grand opening sequence. Like you look at the films of Hitchcock with Bernard Herrmann where they oh, have these great title great, sequences. Yeah. And Burton had that, you know, Blake Edwards and Henry Mancini, that's another mm-hmm. symbiotic relationship between yeah. composer and filmmaker where they would do great opening sequences for all their films, or at least the music mm-hmm. mattered. And it, it like was Parks at Tiffany's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like them. I, I think maybe there's just this feeling in some of the studios that they're boring the people. That, you know, like it's just, or wasting film. Yeah, time. it's like yeah. you're just watching title sequences. But to me, I love them. I think it's yeah. just part of It makes it a movie. It makes it as far as not just watching a TV show. Get Out had a title sequence. I remember that. I liked that. I yeah. found it when I watched Get Out. Did it? It was, like, it was like them driving and you could see the words over like the, the um, it was like a really enchanting, almost like an African ritual sound. Yeah, that had song. a distinct score. It had yeah, very like distinct and it really, again, set the tone and, and, and yeah, it was just showing like the mountains of, I guess, New York is where I think that they were. And, um, yeah, I do remember that. It was, it was oh. mostly, it was like open road kind of visuals. I but sure I remember, remember why, that. why yeah. I didn't know that. When, when I went to see it, they uh, didn't turn the lights off for the first ten minutes of the movie. So I was just oh, sitting oh there enraged. <laughs> now this all makes sense to you. Know, like, holy shit, they did have an opening title sequence. Not to get way off talk of it. I remember there was a time period where they did a lot of animated openings to movies, uh-huh. especially yeah. comedies. In the 80s. Yeah. 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 Like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation has an animation. Uh, There's a movie called One Crazy Summer. Summer has yeah. one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a great movie in the 80s called Lover boy with Patrick Dempsey where he played like a cowboy like a pizza boy or whatever do you remember that anyway it had an animation one thing that's unique to Burton too that I loved is that he would always he was like the first guy to incorporate the studio logo into the tone of the film yes he did that with Batman where it was a very it went to a very dark backdrop to the Warner Brothers logo and then this one you have the snow backdrop for the 20th Century Fox Mm -hmm. logo and he was like one of the first guys to do that Mm -hmm. you know that's coming back to the Star Wars movies. Whether they can, they want to. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a big thing that's been talked about. That hasn't been confirmed yet, but may or may not happen. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. Crossed. Yeah, we're all we're all open. Secret Wars. <laughs> one time, so many people are hoping for corporate synergy. <laughs> that's that's corporate. the best part. <laughs> Merger. Make a monopoly. You know, yeah, make a monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, AV Club. I want it. The first time the left wing is really embracing a corporate merger. Um, so, what do you guys think overall of the film? Did it live up to your expectations pretty well? Uh, what are What are your thoughts? Like, overall? oh yeah, I mean, not to repeat anything I, I may have said earlier, but yeah, this movie I think definitely holds up. I think it's timeless. The, the fable fairy tale storyline will carry throughout many many years. It's just magical. And it's a feel-good movie, and it's a movie that makes you feel. Um, it's very touching. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I, you know, watching it earlier today, I got emotional, you know. I think it brings different things out for different people. Um, for me, the message today, as I shared earlier, was just the fact of people being able to touch their lives. And even, even though circumstances or lifestyles or whatever it is make it impossible for them to stay a part of your life, just always having that memory of them and knowing that they're still living in your heart, I think it's definitely a universal message for all of us. And um, yeah, I think I, I think the movie's solid. I really enjoyed it. It's probably one of my favorite Tim Burton films. Yeah, I I, <coughs> I really like this movie. Um, you know, I guess my thing is that if the movie had stayed with what it was kind of creating itself to be in the first forty hour of the movie with the relationship between Peg and him, if that that was the crux of the movie. I think this movie would probably be one of my favorite movies that Tim Burton has ever did. And I still really, really like it. But the first 40 minutes, I think, is just so fun and watchable and so great. And, you know, all the moments that we talked about, um, that's just really my wheelhouse for a movie. Is this, you know, this kind of satire, but it's like a gentle, mm -hmm. non-cynical satire or something. This is kind of, you know, and like you said, timeless. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you know, but that was saying I, I really, really like this movie. It's really, really watchable. I, yeah, I've I've always loved this movie, and I, it's been probably five or six years since I watched it last, and so this is the first time that I've seen it in like high def widescreen, you know, because it was always VHS before that. And uh, the thing that really struck me watching it this time is just how much craftsmanship went into this film like this construction of the sets and uh you know all the the gadgetry with the cookie making and, yeah. and so on you know and, and it, it almost seems like the last gasp of old hollywood because it was right before the digital era came in yeah. and there's a certain charm in being able to see the seams in the filmmaking you know like for example, there's a, a shot where they're looking down the end of the road and everybody's kind of gathered down there and the castle is in the background and you can just kind of see the blue screen there. Yeah. Uh, the scene with the cookie making when the, the little robots are kind of marching, you're like, ah, those robots' legs are messed up. They're not <laughs> They're, they're not, not really cutting, cutting those cookies. Yeah. But, you know, you would <gasps> never see that sort of thing in films anymore. You know, yeah. like, there's, there's a certain charm in knowing that people, like, really worked and they built this stuff and they made it move and... and uh, you don't have to guess, like, are those bushes digital, you know? Did they, did they just make a digital dinosaur and plop it in there? No, they, they went there and they built this thing, and, and, uh, and I really enjoyed that. Um, like I said, I had forgotten, you know, that the second half of the movie did take such a... I mean, it's one of those movies where I think I started a lot. Like, I start this movie a lot and watch, yeah. like, the first 40 minutes. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's been a while yeah. since I finished it. And so... Uh, when when uh, when Edward does turn on Anthony and Michael Hall at the end, finally, which is well deserved. I mean, he's beating him with an iron bar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. endlessly beating him, and so he finally turns on him. Uh, I still I was a little surprised. I had forgotten that that happens at the yeah. end of this movie. Like I thought maybe he'd just beat him up, and but you know he has scissor hands. I was going to beat him up. Nope, kills him. Um, so that was a little surprising, and it's 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 something that I don't know. I don't know if you would see a film like this made now. 
Like, I don't think this film would get through the studio system anymore for a number of different reasons. Yeah, right. the, the, the bum-out ending, which is still kind of uplifting, you know, the, yeah. the, the fact that they do, uh, you know, basically kill this teenager at the end of the film. Um, there are a lot of things that I just don't necessarily think would fly anymore, and that's part of what I think makes this movie so special, is that mm-hmm. it is, like, of its time and towards the end of that time. You know, like, I just, uh, I, I feel like it represents kind of one of the last films before the changing of the eras mm-hmm. into what we currently have with our, you know, mm-hmm. Hollywood there, nowadays. You know, it's, well, we reviewed Beetlejuice, the same thing. It's $40 million movies just don't get made exactly. anymore, you know? Yeah. yeah you're Which is so sad, because there's so much heart in those movies. Yeah. And- yeah, I think uh, they end up becoming Netflix series. Is really yeah. what happens. They end up on one of the uh, yeah. the uh, streaming services. It's like one of those really quirky, offbeat things. It's like television embraces this, that t- type of material more than film does now. Which might be why it's so wildly popular. Exactly. <laughs> film budgets now are either like multi million dollars or very low budget. You know, it's like right. you either get Lady it's Bird. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now we're making movies about the room. That's 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 interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did not hit her. Movies about bad movies are that's always rated right very good. Yeah, yeah. Ed Wood and the disaster. That's a shoe in to get like uh, green lit anytime. Is the making of the room. Let's get on making a movie about Troll Two. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. I think it's in the upper tier of Burton's filmography. You know, I I think this was his prime period from like 1985 with mm-hmm. Pee Wee all the way to Ed Wood in 94 that was his peak period where his legend is built yeah. you know I, I don't know if the films he's been making that might be what, part of the problem is what we're talking about it seems like he's just adapting things with kind of a g- generic Tim Burton style without having a lot of the heart and passion behind it that he used to have which might be because he's just been doing it for so long I'm ashamed to say I, I the last two Tim Burton films I tried to watch I turned off which oh, ones wow. were they? Miss Peregrine yeah. and uh, Big Eyes I didn't make it through either one of them uh-huh. which is shameful we were surprised I tried to finish theater, everything yeah. I didn't really think it was that spectacular it, it, it was okay it was watchable but it wasn't like a, a, a great piece of filmmaking now one, one film I do love from Tim Burton that I think people often forget is Tim Burton is Big Fish. That is wonderful. Yeah. That, yeah. Talk about a movie that just pulls at your heartstrings. Such a beautiful story. Yeah. Um, and I think Edward Scissorhands is in that same vein, mm. in, in, in a different way. Well, I have to wonder if 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 it's the fact that his heart is not in it anymore, mm-hmm. or if he is under the Hollywood system, you know, more tightly under their thumb now, and they're you know just kind of choking the life out of these movies. They might also just be a combination of the two. It's like, I've been doing this for a long time, and, you know, I, I feel like he's a guy that needs to be creatively reinvigorated again. Like, yeah. give him... He, I always think that Burton's best movies tend to be the ones that come from him directly. Yeah. Or they're a property that hasn't been so well-defined that he could do something with it. Like, Pee-wee was a big celebrity, but he, he wasn't a property. He was a character that Paul mm-hmm. Rubens played. And Tim Burton fleshed out that world for him. That world didn't exist for Pee Wee until Tim Burton came in. Mm -hmm. And Beetlejuice was an original script. Edward Scissorhands was his own idea. You know, and Ed Wood was this offbeat biopic about a guy that, I don't think, outside of film buffs, Mm -hmm. wasn't somebody people were familiar with. Did he do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? He did, yeah. That was pretty good. That was weird. Yeah, I enjoyed (laughs) it. It was very strange. I like that. I'm just such a loyal to the the Gene... 
wilder one. Then no. it's hard, it was hard for me to it's kind of It's true. Yeah. You have to but set yeah. that aside because yeah. Yeah, it is, you know, <laughs> iconic. I always, yeah. I always think like maybe Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a better overall film, but Willy Wonka has a better Willy Wonka. Yes. Which is probably key to a Willy Wonka movie. Is, well... Again, and I didn't. I actually like Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka. Just Gene Wilder's is so great. I mean, it's in the stratosphere. I love how he would just start singing those like random songs. And yeah, he, he got. He was like, yeah. He was kind of a dick. That's a whole good. other podcast. Yeah. He wasn't. That is. He, he <laughs> was like Huey Herman in that. Yeah. Huey Herman is like a private dick. Yeah, he's he like is. a mean person, but that's what I love about him. When we review that movie, I can't wait to delve into that. Yeah, movie, we can. You know? We will. Yeah. There's there a moment. You know when they had the barbecue. And one guy comes in in a jumpsuit. The guy comes up to Ed. He's like, "Hey, we want to invite you to our card game." And he's oh, like, yeah. "You just can't cut." And he starts laughing. But he's wearing like a jumpsuit that reminds me of the one from. Is Pee-wee he a mechanic? Thing. I think he was. Yeah, a yeah. That guy. reminds me of the one from Pee-wee's Big Adventure when. Uh, um, What's the guy's name? What's his, his name? Lewis or is his name? The uh, heavy set front that yeah. does the bike. <clears throat> I know you are one of my guy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I forget his name in that, but they were he's Francis. Was Francis, Francis. Yeah. it's not for sale, Francis. He reminds me of wearing the same suit. <laughs> Francis jumpsuit. Burton loves tacky suburban wear. That's basically like one of his tropes. You know, he loves really well, tacky. Well, you know, kind of kind of to piggyback off of what you guys said, and I've said this before in the podcast, and I usually say it in in regards to people like David Lynch. Um, but one of my favorite things when I'm watching movies, I tend to, and, and you've said this to me before, is that I tend to gravitate towards directors and filmmakers who um, create these beautiful abstract worlds and who are create a beautiful, um, they're just, the cinematography is so beautiful. From, from the sets to the costumes to the worlds um, and the characters. That I like that escapism. Um, and, and Edward Scissorhands, I feel like we get a lot of that. And, and you're right, this is sort of the end of, of that era where we did see more things like that in movies and then we started getting more into the generic run-of-the-mill Well, right e- after this, Tarantino came along and, yeah. and movies took a wild turn for a while. I mean, not all of them, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, you know, the sensibilities of the films that were being put out mm-hmm. like shifted dramatically in the early 90s and, uh, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, you just didn't see this sort of Innocence and escapism, yeah. like what you're saying, but, and then that beautiful, that beautiful visual, mm-hmm. that magic of going to the movies and just seeing this beautiful world in front of you, um, mm-hmm. it got really gritty. Tarantino, yeah. and I like him as a director, mm-hmm. so I have nothing bad to say about him. But movies became more real, and they got gritty. And there's a beauty in that as well. But there's also a sense of loss because I enjoy that magic and you know of those worlds. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Like, you know, like the indie film world made things gritty. Like they were all, they all look like gritty, grungy MTV videos, you know, like they didn't have that same uh, visual panache of 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 Burton or... Lynch. Hitchcock. Even Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, Kubrick, to me, is the pinnacle of a visually stunning filmmaker that has this distinct vision. I think Burton and Lynch are, like, right up there. What's interesting about all those guys is, like, Kubrick was a photographer, Burton was an animator, 
And Lynch was an artist, so they all were came from visual mediums prior to. Well, thank filmmaking. goodness Wes Anderson's still out there. Too. Yeah, that, that's the and one Kevin, guy. And you know, I wanted to bring that up. Yes. This movie had to have inspired Wes Anderson because if it yeah. didn't, then that's a, if he says it didn't, that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lie and a half. <laughs> right? Am I right? Oh, yeah. I mean, from yeah. the color scheme. I was going to say you looked at that color palette and just totally. used it right. Right. and the symmetry <laughs> and, and and the brightness of it. You know. Have you guys ever seen Weeds on Showtime? I've heard of it. I've seen it off and on. I've seen the opening uh, of the first few seasons of Weeds always reminds me of Edward Scissorhands too. It's just an overshot of one of these suburban, you know, and all the cars come out and and, and go simultaneously. But anyhow, I feel like uh, like we were talking about Weeds and also Wes Anderson is like if if uh, Tim Burton and the Coen Brothers had a baby, it would have been Wes Anderson. You know, just that. that Who I enjoy thing. as well. I, oh, I love. Great. Yes, I but love I actually Wes thought that this morning. I was like, "This is so Wes Anderson." <laughs> <laughs> and I bet they would all get along fairly well too. Yeah. Scorsese has has is stylistic, but it's gritty stylistic. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's like he's like a the middle middle ground between. And Lynch gritty is like and, that underground. Yeah. Where it gets really dark and. Mm-hmm. A little bit. A little dark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, just a tad. Just a tad dark. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I haven't gone through one podcast recording not mentioning Audrey Hepburn or David Lynch. No, no. And nor will it'll continue on. Yeah. Yeah, we'll make sure that <laughs> even when we cover not in. Which those two in and of itself is a huge juxtaposition right, of right. loving Audrey Hepburn. And Could David you imagine Lynch. if she did a David Lynch? Oh, that would just yeah. be so awesome. Just wait till our Porky's podcast right. we'll talk about the influence of David Lynch on Porky's. The Lion King. <laughs> yeah, Work Lion King. Audrey Hepburn and David Lynch are all over I'll this find movie. <laughs> Lethal Weapon. Somehow I feel like this is a David Lynch, Audrey Hepburn influence on Mel Gibson. Uh, uh, so I always end the podcast by saying the best place to watch a film outside of a theater is on Blu-ray, which is my favorite format right now. And uh, Edward Scissorhands came out in a 25th anniversary edition in 2015. Okay. Uh, has a really interesting cover. I'm showing it to everybody now. That kind of looks different from what yeah, I've seen. Yeah, it does. It looks very gothic, almost like uh, we're appealing to the hot topic kids oh, more yeah, than yeah. usual. Yeah, it's nice though. But it's again, nice that marketing towards the relationship between the two. Right. Yeah. Which we all clearly. Actually, there's even a heart. There's even a heart in the middle of this this uh, visual I have we're this looking version. at. I have the 20th, I think. Okay. So I, I really enjoy that cover. I yeah, that's, that's a much that's better cover. But this is taking from this. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Although I, I like this one better because it's like... Much a, better. Yeah. I just Boy, like, they photoshopped that. Yeah, yeah, they did. They photoshopped that. That's more of an illustration <laughs> almost. Yeah. Uh, oh, cute, yeah. I think if you're doing an Edward Scissorhands cover, Edward should just be by oh, himself on well, the cover. Well, this is very well said. Variety has said it all. They said that this is a delightful and delicate comic fable. <laughs> yeah, <there it> is. <laughs> Thank you, Variety. <laughs> I was paid to write that, and I delivered. Uh, but, but it looks like it has a lot of the same special features on that one. It has yeah. two commentaries, one with Danny Elfman, mm-hmm. one with Tim Burton. That's an awesome if you're a Tim Burton or Danny Elfman fan. This is definitely well worth owning. It looks like the picture's pristine, too, from some of the screenshots they have here. Yeah, I uh, I actually rented it on Amazon and streamed it, and uh, boy, it was just beautiful. Yeah. They have a great picture quality. I mean, mean, it's a colorful movie to begin with, so this is a movie that you really want to preserve visually, because if there's one thing with Burton, it's the visuals are always top-notch. And I do like at the bottom here, it says, from the imagination of Tim Burton. Yeah, that's cool. Which it is. Uh, so that's it for Edward Scissorhands. Uh, please go check it out again, gang. It's definitely worth checking out, uh, especially the first half of the film. It's my favorite in my favorite section. 
so Eric, thank you very much for joining us oh, today. Thank you for having me. Uh, right. This has been fantastic. Uh, Eric, tell the listeners where they can find you next. Um, I will be uh, performing at the uh, hashtag Paul Steltzer. What is it called? Christmas Extravaganza. <laughs> spectacular Paul Steltzer Holiday Extravaganza. <laughs> Something along those lines. Uh, spectacular Right, right. Spectacular. Uh, December twentieth. And then I believe I'm going to be back uh, with hashtag on January 20th for Joseph's birthday show. Um, So that'll be a good time. And those are at Shadowbox. Yep, and those are at Shadowbox. And uh, I am also currently writing for GamingNexus.com, so you can see my musings on video games. Oh, (laughs) fantastic. Yeah. Any classic Nintendo games I might actually be on. <laughs> or is it very current? Well, yeah. I'm not going to say anything because Christmas is coming. So uh, gotcha. yeah. my kids might listen to this. So no gotcha. talking about... Uh... No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers, yeah. 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 yeah, Scott and I are also going to be part of that. It's Travaganza's The Wheeler Brothers. Uh, that's coming up at the end of the year. And Tony, uh, what's I will on? be very excited cheering loudly in the audience that night because <laughs> uh, like all of my favorite people on the show. Um, I actually am in an all-girl improv group and we have a show on Thursday December 21st at the Nest Theater um, in downtown Columbus and then we have another show on Saturday December 30th at the Nest Theater as well so come out and check us out and um, I'm trying to think that's all I have in the pipeline right now show-wise And as far as the podcast goes, uh, we have a unique podcast coming up after this. We're actually doing a movie that's currently in theaters. It's going to be the new Star Wars film, The Last Jedi. We're doing that as a joint podcast with our friend Amanda Iman called Amanda's Picture Show Go Go. So it's going to be a it's going to be a crossover episode between both podcasts, Amanda's and ours. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Uh, So be looking forward to that in the next week or so. And be sure also, to like us. You yes, know, on Facebook, and I think we're on Twitter. Um, and if you like what you hear, you know, rate us on, on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have something about Tim Burton favorite Tim Burton movies. So yeah, please share that with us. Your favorite Tim Burton films. I'm, we might even post something about your favorite Danny Elfman scores as well oh, yeah. to tie in with with this. So, yeah. uh, and keep listening. We have great things coming in the year ahead. And thank you everybody for listening as usual. And we'll see you next time. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. There was an old man from the Cape who made himself garments of crepe. When asked, will they tear, he replied, here and there, but they keep such a beautiful shape. (laughs) That's right. Go ahead, smile, it's funny. (laughs) That's right. But if you had regular hands, you'd be like everyone else. Yes, I know. (laughs) I think he'd like that. But then no one would think you were special. You wouldn't be on TV or anything. No matter what, Edward will always be special. I have another idea. We'll cover up the scars and start with a completely smooth surface.
good, isn't it? 